you know, John Ralston Saul's idea that we've had a generation of managers, transactional leaders, and what we need is transformational leadership. Hmm. And MMT is the ultimate economic tool for transformational leaders. Hmm. I'm joined today from uh, each of our personal home studio bunkers. I'm joined with Dr. Stephen Howe. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for asking me back. And I'm also joined with David Orney. Thank you for joining us, David. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, listeners. And if this all sounds a bit weird from my bunker today, it's because this morning my laptop died. And after this, I'm going to have to go out in the big scary world and get a new laptop because it is truly cooked. Oh, no. it's just the right time for technology to go wrong Um, yes this is why i'm going out and getting a new laptop immediately it's like we said before we started it's like and and we've said it on the podcast before if this were 20 30 years ago it'd be a lot worse it'd be a lot harder to get through all this i think so it's uh, it's a good thing sitting on the family farm playing they wouldn't close us down though we'd have a worse time yeah true I think a good place to start because it will be in lots of Australians' minds and I think that's a good reason to start there, even though it's not an ideal point for explaining things, is you know, the leader of the Labour Party, you know, Albo's comment the other day that really all this spending is necessary at the moment to deal with COVID nineteen, but that we're going to leave the next generation, you know, a one trillion dollar deficit that they're going to have to deal with and that it's going to slow everything down for decades. And I immediately wanted to scream at him going, you dumb dumb. It's money that has to be spent and it's the state spending it in our own currency. It's absolutely necessary. And let's just deal with the virus and not be terrified of the financial issue because the financial issue isn't real. Stephen, would you like to explain to the audience why Elbow's financial issue isn't real? I think he said it just to sound serious and responsible in Parliament and to uh, maybe get on the news saying it. But I, I shared, I wrote down that comment. I happen to be watching. I don't watch Parliament all the time, but I happen to be watching. And uh, I just jotted down his words and uh, shared it on a tweet. And a couple of his own advisors who, uh, or Labour Party, senior Labour Party advisors who are mainstream neoclassical economists, so this is nothing to do with getting the monetary system right, responded to... Uh, basically agreed with me, Um, just for the wrong reasons. In their view, actually, the government doesn't have much debt. This doesn't increase the amount of government debt all that much in the grand scheme of things compared to other countries, and interest rates are very low. And once we get past this virus, the economy will recover, and you won't need to worry about paying back the debt because basically economic growth will will, uh, make it seem insignificant. That That was their... That was their view, and that's probably what they thought I was saying. So even the neoclassicists? Even the neoclassicists were unhappy with Albo. But the reason they should have been unhappy with Albo, of course, is a completely different reason, which you were just hinting at there, which is that once you strip all the institutional capacity away, uh, every dollar the government spends always, uh, whether it's on uh, the job keepers' allowance or the job seekers' allowance or whatever else it's on is a new dollar. Taxes just delete dollars from the system. A government deficit when it's necessary is just a surplus for everybody else. It's just a deposit they're making in the banking system. 
And if the so-called government debt does increase over time, which of course it will, then that's just all the dollars they've spent into the system and not de deleted out yet. Uh, but you know all that already. And at the moment, I mean, the, the issue is always the risk of inflation, of course, if total spending is too high. But at the moment, the problem that they're dealing with is that we've had to close down large parts of our economy. So people like people like me who've still got are still receiving our wages at work and there's less for us to spend money on. So as a consequence of that, we're going to be saving. We're not going to be spending. And our, our saving, our decrease in spending is somebody else's decrease in income. And if you want to support um, people and support society and ensure that uh, people don't go bust and lose their homes or be forced into poverty and to prevent everything spiraling downwards into a terrible economic depression, then of course you need to uh, run a very large deficit at the moment. And I don't think the government's done too bad a job. I think if anything, and they've perhaps not been quite generous enough, um, but of course they're balancing the need to, um, to uh, support people's incomes and to keep businesses afloat so that we have a supply side of our economy to uh, expand into once we get beyond this virus against the risk that if they went too far that it, it, it might be inflationary or they might put uh, upward pressure on prices and have to do really wartime things like uh, <clears throat> introduce um, price controls and rationing, which I'm sure they want to avoid doing and which shouldn't be necessary as long as they maintain supply chains of basic uh, uh, necessities in the immediate future and as long as this crisis hasn't gone too long. See, to me, that's an interesting question with supply chains because if I'm going to go out and buy a laptop later today, I'm assuming that, that laptop's probably been sitting in Australia since before you know all this became a major issue. So I'll buy that one, that's off the shelf. Now, I'll probably end up buying an Acer. I think they come out of Taiwan. Mm. So we see that thing with global shipping down so much. Is there a risk actually of those inflationary pressures becoming real in the next few months? Or is it likely to be more long term than that? Do we have a precedent where we can judge when the inflation might become a real risk? Well, we can't even properly measure inflation at the moment because large parts of the consumer price index just don't exist right now. Nobody's going to restaurants, for example. People are not going on holidays. Uh, I think that obviously there's been a short-term surge in demand for electron, electronic equipment, but I, I think that's happening almost entirely at the beginning yeah. of this. If anything, probably people are spending more than they need. I was tempted to go and buy an emergency spare laptop myself. I didn't actually do it. I was in, uh, which store was I? They're a store that sell electronic equipment, but they also sell home furnishings and uh, that oh, sort of thing. That, that's right. An enormous, an enormous home furnishings department they have in, in Mount Barker. Literally nobody in it at all. <laughs> Plenty of stuff to buy, nothing at all. Then a tiny electronic section, absolutely packed, and it was quite a struggle to stay a couple of meters away from everybody Isn't in there but but i don't think it'll be packed anymore apart from people who like you have seen their equipment fail i think for the most part people have already done that spending i don't think it's important really what happens to those prices it's small enough amounts right of now. money and you in any can case, it's, you it's can the not basic, spend it if it's not available mm. yeah it's the basic essentials that we have to be careful about we have mm. to be careful that people don't lose their homes 
we have to wherever possible we have to keep businesses afloat although there will have been some small businesses that closed down a week or two ago that are not going to come back um, and we have to uh, make sure that people are as far as they can be safe and they enjoy economic security and nobody's reduced to poverty as uh, as a result of this as i said i think they could have been a little bit more they could have done a hybrid maybe of our scheme and the and the british scheme have been perhaps a little bit more uh, generous I, I i'm not convinced that what's in place at the moment is going to be sufficient but uh, there's always you're right there's always that risk of going too far the important thing is that, that risk has nothing to do with government debt nothing to do with being able to fund anything the government is never going to run out of australian dollars they are actually effectively at the moment not issuing debt at all once you go through all the institutional complexities of it because through the reserve bank which is 100 percent owned by the treasury they're currently purchasing government debt at a more rapid rate than they're issuing it in the primary market so once you take that out really all that's happening is the reserve bank is typing money into the uh, into the cell in the excel spreadsheet which is the official public account and the, the treasury spending from it that's what's happened that raises two things for me first to you know ask you a question about the the british example that idea of paying people 80 percent of their pay seems a really good single action solution up to roughly the median income thing. yeah but it seems a great idea to just make stuff happen fast and to simplify the management of the system during the crisis and that just seems a good idea to have a simpler system well, our system's pretty simple, if, if anything, maybe even simpler. But the advantage of our system is that it provides an incentive for people to stay in the workplace, employers to keep them in the workplace wherever possible. That's why I said you might have had a hybrid of the system where for people who are making significantly above the minimum wage, you subsidised a proportion of their normal salary which yeah. effectively would have been giving their employers a bit more of a subsidy to keep them in the workplace than at the moment or if they were if it was impossible uh, to do that if they were furloughed helping them to meet them that their living expenses a bit better but it really depends what else you do as lots of people have have said the more you do uh, to help people when it in terms of cash going out of their bank account the less you have to do to help people when it comes to putting cash into their bank account in the first place I, I think the government could have shown a bit more leadership where uh, rents were concerned particularly uh, i'm not talking so much about commercial rents but um uh, personal rents and also i think they could have shown a bit more leadership rather than really leading it to the banks where mortgage repayments are concerned i would have thought about for six months just scrapping mortgage repayments and rather than uh, adding the deferred interest to the amount people owed their bank at the end and increasing their debt, I would have thought about having the RBA get together with the banks and the other mortgage lenders and deal with the consequences through the RBA. And once you've relieved landlords of uh, interest payments on repayments on mortgage loans they've taken out, then I think you're also in a position to either severely limit or even scrap rent payments for a while. And if you do that, then you don't have to put so much money into people's bank accounts in the first place. But you can easily be, I mean, we're dealing with an unprecedented situation. And I don't think, I was, 
I have been surprised, massively surprised on the upside by the government as far as both the uh, job seekers payment and the job keepers payment are concerned. And I think that's been handled better here than it has been almost anywhere else in the world. And in the US, the absence of something like the job keepers payment and in addition, the fact that they're, uh, the way they administer their unemployment benefits in the US is absolutely appalling, um, is greatly contributing towards an economic catastrophe to, catastrophe to go along with the health catastrophe that they're suffering at the moment. And I don't think we're going to be as badly affected in terms of uh, our economy as them. Um, and part of that, of course, is to do with the, uh, the health crisis as well. But actually, the way they're stuffing up their economic response um, and the way they've already stuffed up their uh, response to the spread of the virus are, as, as we were saying before we started, really linked to the, the way, you know, the t social factors in, in, in the US that you understand much better than I do. A laissez-faire approach as an instinct not telling people what to do, the government being a problem rather than part of the solution, not having a proper unemployment insurance system in place, uh, making it even easier to uh, fire people in the US than it is in countries like Australia, and all that kind of stuff. It, 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 it's added to the problem in the US and we're in a much better position than them. But none of this is to do with Albo's comment, which was just wrong and reflects a misunderstanding of the of the monetary system, which is, is very sad, really. I, I wish that, uh, I don't want to be partisan about it, I wish that both Josh Frydenberg uh, and the Labour side, including Albo, understood how the monetary system works. I suspect that Frydenberg understands it a bit better than Albo, actually, which... Actually, that was going to be my comment, is I'm so stunned by how well our mediocre neoliberal government has done dealing with this. It actually suggests some people have been going, hang on, this isn't working like it's meant to. And they may not want to do more than tinker around the edges in the long run, but at least there was some courage to do what was necessary. And I suppose this is partially an economic question, but partly also a cultural question. Is, you know, the other day, our friends made the comment that he can't imagine what the world will be like after this. And of course, this comment everyone was meant to view as a nice dadsy comment that, you know, he's as sort of confused as the rest of us. But if you look at it from the perspective of cognitive dissonance, what he's saying is he can't imagine a future that isn't like his past. Mm. So a really important issue here to me. And I think I'll, I'll put two bits in it because, you know, we don't want to accidentally talk over each other and make it harder for Tim to edit this. Is First of all, what steps do we go through next sort of as we get the virus under control as the curve is flattened as we start being able to release restrictions what other better economic steps we should take using mmt as a tool to get things done so that we can get people like morrison to understand this is the future you can imagine if you open your ideological mind and as part of this thing of what do we do next um, the Europeans have been talking about COVID-19 bonds. I don't understand why they would do it now, and I don't understand how that would contribute later to the well-being of the recovery. So I know that's two different things, not exactly the same, 
but they're the two things I was kind of thinking next if you're interested in unpacking them. Well, as far as Australia is concerned, of course, we're not going to be in charge. The government is still going to be in charge when all this comes to an end. But the first thing that they really ought to stop doing is talking about repaying the debt or wanting to push the budget into surplus. It should be absolutely obvious to everyone now, particularly bearing in mind that the Japanese government has six times as much debt as our government, just as an example that uh, no governments with a monetary system similar to ours are in any way constrained in terms of their ability to spend when they need to spend to support the economy and when it's not inflationary to do so. Uh, it ought to be obvious to people now that um, government deficits don't impose a burden on future generations. If anything, it's the other way around because the government's deficit is, is our surplus. So. The first thing that both sides of politics should do is they should start talking the way Stephanie was earlier in the year about looking to, I know perhaps it sounds a bit meaningless, but balance the economy rather than the budget. Or to put it another way, um, the government budget is a tool. It's not an outcome that we should be, uh, we shouldn't be setting any specific fiscal target. There are lots of other things to rethink. Uh, of course as well and I'd come up with much different answers to what the government would do but I think even the even the conservatives are rethinking some things that would have seemed unthinkable before and are still unthinkable about among most of my colleagues in economics departments around Australia like uh, um, the pattern of free trade that we've developed around the world and long supply chains we've had government ministers saying well really we ought to be a little bit more self-sufficient in some areas of manufacturing in Australia, particularly where we're talking about the necessities of life, because something like this might happen again. And it's problematic when, uh, for example, when you're not in a position to rapidly supply uh, medical staff with essential equipment from within the country. They, they are beginning to say things like that. But there are lots of other things that um, I would like to see rethought. I'd like to see the the whole notion of the gig economy and casualization of our labor force, rethought and risks transferred wherever possible from individuals back to organizations that are better able to cope with them again. Or if you're not going to do that, I'd like to see a federal job guarantee in place. If there had been a federal job guarantee in place when this crisis broke out, then as the economy started to close down and people started to lose their jobs, we wouldn't have had long queues outside uh, Centrelink offices of people who were panicking because everybody would have thought, well, I can at least go into the job guarantee program and I'm still going to have a decent income. And of course, while it would not have been safe for most job guarantee projects to just continue during this virus, well, while it's not safe for people to work in a job guarantee, you'll pay them the job guarantee wage anyway while they're at home so those kind of things if yeah, we're talking about really europe for that, i suppose sorry yeah 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 well no that's fine if we were talking about europe those coronavirus bonds which they haven't even managed to agree to yet anyway are i mean they're just a sticking plaster on a monetary system that doesn't work you either need a strong federal government um that sits above the european central bank like our government does here like the US federal government does in America, um, or else you need your own currencies. Uh, I think we might, I can't remember now, but we might on one of these podcasts have discussed the Eurozone before, 
And when we did, we would have said, it'll break down next time there's a crisis. We're just yeah, waiting for We were for talking crisis. about the German banks being so over leveraged and that you know, they weren't going to fix it. So it was more than likely going to break. So it is breaking down now that there's another crisis. Uh, at the moment, the Northern European countries and the Southern European countries can't agree on these coronavirus bonds anyway. They're nothing but a sticking plaster. Those governments, they need a national central bank behind them. It's difficult to imagine that uh, the spending limits on those individual governments would be relaxed within the Eurozone and the European Central Bank would agree unconditionally to back their debt so that there was never any default risk the way the current system works. That would terrify the Germans because they'd be uh, they'd be talking about irresponsible and inflationary spending in southern Europe. So they'd never agree to that. They're, they're not even agreeing at the moment on a sticking plaster that just goes a, a little way temporarily uh, in that direction. So either you have um, a strong federal government, either Europe actually moves towards being a, a, a proper federal system, which there isn't the political legitimacy for, or countries in time go back to having their own currencies. Not necessarily all of them, you know, the Benelux countries and one or two others, Austria might continue to use the German currency, which is effectively what the Euro is anyway. But most of the other countries would always have been better off outside the Eurozone and would be better off now moving towards reintroducing, well, not immediately, but would be better off in the future moving towards reintroducing their own currencies. It's better to do this in a planned way rather than a catastrophic one. But we've had 5,000 years of monetary history. There's never been a monetary system set up like the Eurozone. And there's probably a very good reason for that. It just, it, it doesn't work. Next time there's a crisis, it'll collapse. It, it, you know, there'll be chaos. Maybe it won't collapse in terms of they'll keep the, somehow they'll keep the currency working, but um, they'll drive millions of people into poverty like they did last time in order to in order to bring that about people in europe don't understand this or they haven't understood it yet maybe maybe an understanding is is going to spread now as a result of what's going on at the moment they didn't pick up up on it after the global financial crisis they should have picked up on the fact that not everything that happened in greece and hardly anything that happened in places like spain and italy and portugal were the faults of the national governments they were problems with the monetary system itself, and they're still within that system. So sure, if you are within the system, then uh, coronavirus bonds, which place the um, burden of uh, repayments of, of those bonds on what are not monetary sovereign governments, uh, which spread them, I should say, across, across the Eurozone rather than impose them all on, on Italy, if Italy is the government faced with the, the biggest problem to deal with at the moment and needing to do the biggest amount of deficit spending. Uh, yes, they'd be better than nothing. Um, but uh, I think in the long run, I'm pretty certain that in the long run, some point in the next 10 years, certainly 20 years, hopefully 10 years, the lira will be coming back as far as Italy is concerned. But I don't think wow. the Eurozone is going to continue as it is at the moment. And that's interesting because it'll come back in a setting where you, everyone remembers the inflation that it experienced and the, pro and the problems with monetary sovereigns controlling their own currency and, and perhaps not doing it well or, or not controlling the, or, or the relationship between resources and that currency, but then also having the uh, alternate option in very recent memory as well.
Well, I suppose so. But the fact is that the Italians, regardless of uh, what you've got to say about their governments down the years, they were far better off in the 1990s than they are now. And the Greeks, they were, <laughs> they were better off with the drachma and uh, incompetent and corrupt um, governments that were in place in the past. Most Greeks were better off then, not in terms of GDP per capita, I suppose. Well, actually, well, they would have been if you're talking about Greece, but not in, ter- not, not in Italy in the long run. But the economy would have grown over time anyway. For ordinary people, they had a better quality of life and a more secure quality of life in the 1970s and 80s and 90s in these countries and they have recently and it's entirely down to the monetary system. I feel like what is clear now or what should be clear for a lot of people is that austerity is like just no longer an option. I'm just not sure that that's as acceptable now. It depends what you mean by austerity. There'll be time, there'll be times for austerity and the times for austerity are when otherwise there would be inflation and the inflation is is caused as a result of too much spending in the economy relative to our productive capacity rather than some other cause and then when you have considered all the all the options in terms of managing inflation and it seems that the most effective one is to um, limit public spending or raise taxes that's the time for austerity so we're not saying that you should never run a government surplus and actually if if you're in an economy that has a perpetual and significant trade surplus somewhere like Norway then government surpluses are are, uh, appropriate in order to limit the total demand for goods and services produced in the economy to what can be supplied but in the great majority of countries nearly all the time surpluses won't be won't be a sensible policy option because usually we want the private sector to run a surplus and if the country's not running a trade surplus, the only way for the private sector to run a surplus and build up its savings in Australian dollars is for the government to run a deficit. Do you feel like the way that this has been implemented now, that will eventually end up in the pockets of landlords, it will end up in banks, it will end up in, in eventually the top end of town, all of these payments. So whilst I agree we've been good at keeping a lot of people not everyone, but a lot of people from going under, it feels like this eventually ends up in, in a, a wealth distribution that we might not want. Or they might want it, I don't know. Well, we already have a very uneven distribution of income and wealth. But, um, you know, that's it, another way of looking at it. Is it, it I mean, some of it's going to end up in our bank accounts. I mean, particularly those of us, if we are still in work and we're still being paid and there's not so much to spend on, then some of us are going to be saving at the moment. And some of us will be repaying, uh, will be in a position actually to pay down debts that we've built up in the past if we're in that fortunate position. And private sector balance sheets will come out of this or should do in a more healthy position than we go into it. Because as I was saying, that deficit spending by the government is a surplus for us. And the emission of net financial liabilities or debt by the government is, is net financial assets. For us, one of the side effects of the Second World War is that in countries like Australia and the UK and the US, the private sector came out of the war with very stable and secure balance sheets. And uh, a high level of government debt went with a very low level of private sector debt and high private sector savings. And uh, it was the evolution of this over time where uh, the private sector's uh, net financial assets were being eroded and private debt was increasing 
and the financial system was becoming progressively more fragile that Hyman Minsky spent his entire career writing about, really, um, saying that it, um, during the great majority of his life, the US and uh, other market economies were a long way from another 1929 crisis, but that eventually they get there. That's why 2008 was, by a lot of people, called a Minsky moment. Whereas Randy Ray, who used to work with Hyman Minsky, said it wasn't a Minsky moment, it was a Minsky half century. Things started moving in this direction in the 1950s, and it's just taken us until now to get here. So, yes, uh, ideally, we could look again at how we organise our financial system. We could look again at how we regulate our banks. We could look again at uh, the cost of uh, you know, housing costs, the property market, the potential to, um, if it was down to me, I'd be moving back towards replacing some of the housing stock which was privatised in Australia um, to uh, increase the supply of affordable housing. Then that's going to undermine, um, that's going to be against the interests of a lot of people like me that own some property. But uh, that, that would be, a, that's one of a number of uh, desirable outcomes that I would like to see. I would like to see a more progressive tax system that we have now, which is one way of limiting the inequality of income and wealth distribution. Tax systems were far more progressive in the past. If you go to the US in the 1950s, their tax system, people would regard that as communism today, and that was under Republican presidents at the time. There's a Beatles song from the 1960s called Taxman. You might be familiar with the George Harrison song, uh, where he's bemoaning the fact that he has to pay a marginal tax rate of 95%. It's one for you, 19 for me. That's one of the lines from Taxman on the Revolver album. The world was very different then, but economies grew. I mean, you might think, oh, there'll be no incentive for people to work hard and take risks and be enterprising if we went back to a system like that. But actually, economies like, even though there were relative laggards, like the British and American and Australian economies, if your aim was to grow the economy, they grew much faster in the 50s and 60s than they ever had since some of that was reconstruction of course but it does show that a more progressive tax system does not undermine capitalism and and stop it functioning instead it just creates a different form of shared prosperity capitalism to the one the financialized uh, and unequal form of capitalism that we've we've built ever since we need to look at investments we make in the health system if you're going to have a privatized health system like the US one and to an extent like R1, then one of the consequences of that, one of them is that you don't have spare capacity. Uh, we should be thinking perhaps into the future that maybe in five, 10, 15, 20 years time, something like this or worse will happen. And we maybe should be thinking about trying to prepare for that in advance. I would be where larger organizations need financial help to stay afloat at the moment, like the airlines. I would be part nationalizing them. I would then use the power that that gave me to have uh, workers on boards of directors so that ordinary employees would have a say in the remuneration of Alan Joyce or any of the other chief executives. Uh, personally, I would be moving towards uh, nationalising the superannuation system. Um, they have nationalised systems in other countries like Holland and Denmark and their systems seem to work just as well as ours, and at less than one-tenth of the cost. 
Um, financialization has driven inequality. It first of all drove up remuneration in the financial sector for chief executives, and then there was a sort of demonstration effect so that it spread elsewhere so that we have a much bigger multiple of incomes of people on the top to ordinary workers than we ever had before. There's lots of things that it would be nice to do. None of those things, I think, um, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg will be particularly interested in doing, but they'll have to rethink some things because we're all going to be protesting very, very significantly if they even consider cutting the job seekers payment all the way back down to where New Start was a few weeks ago. I don't think they can do that. They could, particularly because as we observe, as we come out of this crisis, there'll be a lot more unemployed people for a while than there were before we went into it. The notion that you're going to say to those people, you're on $15,000 a year now. Oh, and by the way, you've got to apply for 40 jobs a month or something. And by the way, you have to turn up and for well below the minimum wage, you have to go work in these uh, work for the dull projects. And people are not going to accept that. So they'll have to rethink some things. And I suppose it's up to us to try and pressure them to rethink a lot more. This is very interesting, this idea that some of us are going to be able to pay more debt down and save more. So there's a group in the middle who potentially come out of this with debt reduced and in a position to invest in the economy in a new way. And as it comes out of this, you'd imagine the potential economic opportunities should be you know, more diverse than they've been before. We also have the group of people who are going to have relied on job seeker or job keeper and it's going to be a big proportion of the population, mm. enough to for once actually change the outcome of an election, which means better systems for keeping people in work or better conditions while unemployed mm. or better representations you know, of people from all levels within organisations on company boards should be significant. That's all stuff that we can essentially fight about from our experiences now. You know, what should tax be like? What should support be like one of the things that i think everyone i've spoken to is confused by and doesn't know what to do with is we already nearly have interest rates at zero what the heck does money lending to rebuild the economy if you know, sort of private money lending private financial activity based on loans look like after this statement how do we go about getting money to people with good ideas in a world where interest rates are so low, in a way that actually helps rebuild the economy effectively rather than overheat it with bad debt? Well, one of the things that I do to, in terms of regulating the financial system is that, and this is, not, this is not an original idea from me, but lots of people, including Bill Mitchell and, and Warren Mosler, have uh, suggested this, is I would prevent any lending which was secured on financial assets. What that is going to do is it's going to lead to a lot less speculative activity and you're not going to have people buying shares on margin and doing all sorts of other things which create activity and create income for some people but which don't actually contribute towards the capital development of the economy in a useful way. And, and what you want is for banks in the future to focus on what their core activities ought to be. One of those is, is running the money transmission system. Now, with modern technology, actually, you could have a money transmission system without our banks 
Um, but um, we can, it's working okay at the moment, so we can let them continue to run it the way they run it now uh, under the RBA. But the other function that they have, and this is the reason for having a private sector in banking at all, rather than just nationalizing the whole thing, is that they decide who to lend to. They decide who to create the credit for, as far as small businesses are concerned. They look at business plans and assess them and work out whether somebody's a good credit risk and uh, whether, um, whether it's worth um, while lending to them, bearing in mind their credit risk and also how the banks are regulated in terms of the risks that they're taking in their own reserves of, of capital by 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 APRA. Now, I don't see that's going to be any more problematic in the future than in the, the past. As, in terms of interest rates being virtually zero, actually what's happening to the cash rate at the moment is itself very interesting. But I would prefer a, a very simple financial system where the official interest rate would be the rate of interest paid by the Reserve Bank on bank exchange settlement accounts, banks deposits at the RBA. And if it was down to me, it would be set at zero forever. Uh, I would not be offering people a positive return on nominally safe financial assets. Interest payments would involve you taking a risk if you wanted to get, uh, so a bank will charge you a, a, a rate of interest on a loan, but that rate of interest would depend basically on how risky you are as a borrower, I don't see a problem with that. There's no greater problem with that with low or zero interest rates. Than there, and we're used to low interest rates now. We've had low interest rates basically for a long time. Official interest rates in the Eurozone and in Japan have been negative for a long time. I'm not in favour. I don't see any point in, it doesn't achieve anything, in having negative interest rates, but I, I'd, leave them at, I'd leave them at zero. The official, the target cash rate is 0.25% at the moment, but that's not the actual cash rate. The Reserve Bank, nobody seems to be saying very much about this in the media. The Reserve Bank has sort of on purpose lost control of, of the interest rate, which officially it targets. Right, now the cash rate yesterday was 0.17 of a percent. It wasn't 0.25%, although that's the Reserve Bank's target. And actually that's a consequence of quantitative easing. Quantitative easing always <coughs> drives the short-term interest rate on the money market, the interest rate at which the banks lend to each other uh, for 24 hours below the central bank's target because it creates excess reserves in the system. It means that there are more banks with spare cash, which they'd be happy to, which they'd like to lend overnight than there are banks wanting to borrow that cash overnight. So it puts downward pressure on that interest rate. And if you do enough QE, then the overnight cash market, and this is happening day by day at the moment, the volume of transactions is, is, is shrinking. That overnight cash market disappears. You get to the point where uh, it's a rare event for a bank to need to borrow from another bank overnight because they've all been stuffed full of cash reserves. So nobody needs to borrow overnight, in which case the interest rate that our reserve bank has got used to announcing a target for will no longer exist. There won't be a cash rate. And then they'll have to do um, what the Fed did and what the Bank of England did and what the European Central Bank did. And they'll either have to use that same name to apply, for it, to, to apply to a different interest rate, which is the interest rate that the Reserve Bank pays on bank reserves, which is currently 0.1 of a percent. 
well, they can either use use the cash rate to refer to that or they can invent a different term for it. But that becomes the policy interest rate. So at the moment, we are midway below the benchmark short-term interest rate in Australia being the Reserve Bank's target of 0.25% and the floor rate it pays on banks' reserves, which is 0.1% of a, of a percent. And this is something very new. Uh, it's 20 years since there was a gap between the RBA's target for the cash rate and the interest rate that the banks were actually using. And that gap opened up, when was it, on March the 18th or 19th, the same day they announced the reduction in the target cash rate from 05 to 0.25%. They also announced that they were starting doing quantitative easing, buying large amounts of government bonds from the private sector. And the second of those policies, in a way, deliberately frustrated the first one. So they announced a target for the cash rate and they announced a policy which automatically meant they weren't going to hit that target. They knew they were doing it because we've sent them an email and asked them about it and we've had a response. So the target cash rate is, well, I don't know, it sort of, it signals their intentions, they cut it, but nobody's lending or borrowing overnight at the Reserve Bank's target cash rate anymore. So am I to understand, I, my understanding of quantitative easing prior to this had been based on one five-minute sketch from Clark and Dorr and someone referring to it as welfare for banks. And <laughs> um, oh, Neither of those will have, been, will have been reliable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> one of them will have been funnier than the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, true. <laughs> However, from what I've just understood from what you said, if your ideas or, or, or Bill Mitchell's ideas and Warren Mosel's ideas in terms of controlling interest rates through the central bank were in place, there wouldn't necessarily be a need for quantitative easing. As, am, I, am I interpreting that correctly? Well, there isn't a need for quantitative easing now. It basically doesn't achieve anything. Uh, right. it's, it's, it's what the central bank is legally allowed to do. When central banks use quantitative easing, it is a signal that they don't think the government's doing enough on fiscal policy. So they think they have to do something as well on top of that. And in recent years anyway, most central bankers have understood that QE doesn't have much of an impact, but it's, it's what they're allowed to do. So they're in a sort of situation where they're thinking, oh my God, something must be done. We can't cut interest rates anymore. What else can we do? And then they say, well, we can do this. We're legally allowed to do this. Does it work or not really? but it's what we're allowed to do. If we do it on an enormous scale, then it might have some slight impact. And while well, QE has a long history, it is something which a colleague of Keynes called Roy Harrod suggested to the Fed back in the 1930s, actually, to try to prevent the US banking system crashing and, uh, uh, and prevent the worst, um, the worst excesses of the Great Depression. And the US Fed didn't want to listen to him at the time, um, given the way the monetary system worked in those days and the gold standard and all that, it would have been a good idea what Harrod was, was uh, recommending. The modern, um, modern quantitative easing started with Japan and started in the year 2001. They started talking about doing it in 1999. Eventually in 2001, they got around to doing it because they'd had interest rates at zero for a long time and they kept missing their inflation target on the low side or in fact struggling not to have negative rates of inflation there are all sorts of reasons why you don't really want to have a negative um, rate of inflation so they introduced it then and japan on and off has done qe ever since they've done an enormous amount of it since about 2010 um 
the Japanese central bank now owns nearly half of all Japanese government debt. And J Japan's government debt, remember, is the world's highest government debt. It's about six times what our government's debt is. So that's an awful lot of Japanese government bonds they've bought. They've bought a lot of private sector debt. And uh, almost uniquely in Japan, the central bank's been buying shares as well on the stock market. They've been buying shares in exchange traded funds to a considerable extent too. And they're continuing to do these things, feeding more and more cash into banks reserves. They talk about expanding the central bank balance sheet. What they mean by that is the central banks bought loads and loads and loads of government bonds, which are an asset for the central bank. And they've created bank reserve accounts. They've created, they've credited bank reserve accounts. Well, they're, a, they're a, an asset for the private banks. They're a liability for the central bank. But this isn't free money for anyone because it's an asset swap. So the banks used to own government bonds. They don't own the government bonds anymore. Instead, they've got cash on deposit at the central bank. In fact, very often they're getting a lower interest rate than they used to do because the government bonds historically have tended to offer higher interest rates than reserve accounts at central banks have. Um, so it's, 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 it's an asset swap. That's what QE is now. The Fed started doing it um, after the global financial crisis. Ben Bernanke was very keen on quantitative easing, partly because part of his academic career had been based on analysing what had gone wrong in the Great Depression, and he didn't want that to happen again. And the Bank of England also started doing it in 2009. Uh, the European Central Bank didn't get round to quantitative easing until 2015, since when they'd done an enormous amount of it too, buying government bonds and also private sector bonds, not really propping up Greece because um, they purchased government bonds uh, uh, using QE, um, uh, basically in proportion to the significance of the individual economies within the Eurozone. And the Greek economy, Greek economy has a tiny weight. Um, so they've mainly been buying um, German government bonds and French government bonds, and they've been running out of those to buy. So they've been buying private sector securities as well. And the RBA has just started doing it now. The Reserve Bank uh, has set itself a target of buying enough government bonds to ensure that the rate of interest on three-year Commonwealth government bonds is at 0.25%, the same as its mythical target for the cash rate. That is a signal that the, the, the official cash rate figure is not going to rise for at least three years in their view. If you buy enough government bonds, you drive their prices up. And by driving their prices up, that's the same thing as saying the interest rate on them goes down. And, and um, the RBA has managed to do that. They don't just buy three-year government bonds. You can achieve this by buying bonds of a variety of maturities because they're substitutes for each other. And they've even been buying state government bonds as well. So the Reserve Bank, I checked just before we started, they've so far purchased $38 billion worth of government bonds since they, uh, since they introduced quantitative easing. This puts, it, this puts additional cash into banks exchange settlement accounts. And that explains what I said earlier, banks then don't really need to borrow from each other very much overnight because they've got loads of cash. That's why the cash rate has fallen below uh, target. Now, people used to think 
that putting extra cash in banks exchange settlement accounts might be inflationary because it might cause the banks to go and lend a lot more to you and me. But that's not how the banking system works. They can't lend you and me what's in their exchange settlement accounts because we don't have exchange settlement accounts. You can only lend those funds to somebody else that has an exchange settlement account. A bit like unless you withdrew funds from your bank in physical currency, you couldn't lend money from your bank account to somebody else who didn't have a bank account. And um, so they can't lend those funds to you and me. And for reasons we won't go into now, having more funds in your exchange settlement account does nothing to affect your material incentives to go and lend to David Olney or, or Tim or to Stephen. So it doesn't lead to any more lending. What it does do, as I mentioned, it puts downward pressure on long-term interest rates. And as David might have said, if I'd, if I'd let him get a word in, uh, that reduces the return to fund managers and people that hold things like government bonds or even long-term corporate bonds. And some of those fund managers that are trying to help people prepare for retirement, then maybe they'll want to shift into riskier financial assets and perhaps they'll buy shares and perhaps that will help prop up the stock market and perhaps that will make people feel a bit richer and maybe they'll go and buy some more things in the shops. And also maybe it'll be a bit easier for companies to raise money, first because the interest rate on corporate bonds is lower, and also the stock market's a bit more buoyant than it otherwise would be. Beyond that, and beyond, as I said, signalling to everybody that interest rates are going to be zero or virtually zero for a long time, quantitative easing does nothing at all. And for that effect to be at all significant, you have to do it on a vast scale. And even there, the evidence we have from Japan and the US and the UK and elsewhere is that if QE is going to have any positive effect at all on financial markets, basically it happens when you first announce it. Once you start doing it, the subsequent effects are weak or non-existent. So when people talk about the Reserve Bank stimulating the economy through quantitative easing, it does next to nothing. It's the government, like we often say in modern monetary theory, it's, it's, the, it's the treasury that has the power. The government can go and make welfare payments or build solar power stations or green infrastructure or spend on education and health. The government can stimulate economic activity when that's appropriate or at the moment can support economic activity using its own spending decisions, fiscal policy. The Reserve Bank... Sure, they can cut interest rates to zero, but eventually we have so much debt that even that doesn't make us go and borrow. Once that happens, they can do quantitative easing. It, it just won't achieve anything. It's fairly ineffective, and basically it's also not that bad. Like, there's, there's nothing bad about it, really. It doesn't do a lot of harm, no. It does distort financial markets a bit. It encourages some more speculative activity on financial markets than <coughs> we might, might have liked, but... The, to the extent it has an effect, it's basically about manipulating interest rates. Central banks, under normal circumstances, set a short-term interest rate. As I've said, the cash rate that they have a target for is a 24-hour interest rate, and they leave everything else to the market. When the central bank is doing quantitative easing, they're setting long-term interest rates as well. Mm -hmm. They're not doing anything really beyond that. And, and when I say it's been done on a massive scale, the world's major central banks all multiplied the size of their balance sheets by at least five. 
the central banks got at least five times as big after doing QE. And in the case of Japan, much more than that than they had before. And they all continued to miss their inflation targets on the low side. So we've basically done what would have seemed before 2008 and in Japan before 2001, we've done something that would have seemed crazily inflationary to people who didn't understand the monetary system. You talked about printing money. Well, you know what? If, 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 if it's if central bank money that you're talking about, they printed five times as much of it as they used to be. And it's had no effect on anything. It's just sitting there in bank reserve accounts. So I guess I have been on a bit of a mission to try and remove the word debt from any kind of economics talk because I think that it has connotations of needing to repay it and also that if you don't repay it, there are costs that I think aren't useful in, in this setting, whereas I think a deficit is a much better word for that. Well, even deficit is not a brilliant word, but we're sort of stuck with it. But you're right, debt, uh, and that reminds me, reminds me of a book I know that uh, David has read because we mentioned it in the past. I think David read this book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. It's a fantastic book. Yeah, well, which starts off explaining the roots of words like debt in ancient religions and... Uh, and how it's all tied into uh, morality and immorality and the notion that it's immoral not to repay your debts. And that, that reminds me of the video that Stephanie showed at her talk at the university in January, where there were various American politicians saying, oh, US government debt has become an immoral issue. Mm. It's all nonsense, of course. You're quite right. Uh, when you have your own currency, and especially if you have a floating exchange rate, and no foreign currency debt. The best way of thinking about what people call the government's debt is just to call it the net money supply. That's what it is. And the best way to think about the government's budget deficit is it's everybody else's budget surplus. Absolutely. And, and then you just turn everything around the other way. Yeah. So the questions of uh, how are we going to repay the debt or questions of um, whether we need to repay the debt should more likely become questions of how how are we going to manage inflation? Um, I think is exactly. that's what that's what the that you know in I'd, I'd envisage in twenty years time if she's still around that's what Lee Sales will be asking on you know the seven thirty report is <laughs> how uh, how inflationary is this policy? It's also what she would have asked once upon a time. Hmm. Yeah, pre nineteen seventy. So it seems to me here that this is a fascinating situation where interest rates are so low because they're not actually that important. Quantitative easing is happening because the Reserve Bank needs to signal. But the consequences of all this is essentially two big arrows pointing back at government, saying it's actually your responsibility to come up with policy and to tell us to create and spend money to make it happen. And if you don't do that, we'll do the clown dance over here, but we'll achieve nearly nothing. Well, that's what I think is becoming increasingly obvious to, to people. But whether it's obvious to them yet or not, it will become obvious to them because there is nothing really that the central bank positive can do. They could create a financial crisis if they were to jack interest rates up to 10% tomorrow. Mm. The housing market would crash and so would the stock market and there'd be defaults and banks' capital bases would be wiped out and the Reserve Bank would have to rescue private banks the government might end up nationalizing them to save them or something but so uh, there's an asymmetry there oh, yeah, once again that is only that they can retard action they can't increase it 
if you want to increase economic action you know across the economy the society the state it requires a government to make decisions about policy and telling the central bank to fund it it the does central bank can only slow an economy it can't grow it unless policy does well that's the that's the situation we're in at the moment if we were going back a few decades and there was no private debt and there were high interest rates then temporarily you could uh, stimulate economic activity by cutting interest rates if you could encourage people to go and take out more debt. But the trouble is that's a sugar hit. It adds to spending now, but then in a year or two's it time, adds people- debt later that makes everything right. worse. That's yeah. right, yeah. Whereas the uh, um, government net spending, of course, creates money for us to spend, which for you and me is not a debt. And shouldn't be thought of as a debt in the conventional sense for the government. I mean, if Tim wants to argue against people using that word debt in the context of our government even a little bit more, you could point out that were you to eliminate, I mean, they can eliminate net debt and have a more fragile financial system. That's what John Howard did temporarily. But if you were to eliminate the gross financial liabilities of our government, that means, uh, that means not having an Australian dollar anymore because our currency is a financial liability. Of our government, so to, uh, to to abolish government debt entirely, and using that word debt to encompass all the financial liabilities of of, of the federal government means not having a currency. Um, now let's remember and remind everyone: we need and want our currency because it gives our government the power to have policy and tell the Reserve Bank to fund it, as long as we're buying real resources that we can buy with our own currency. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if we're using somebody else's currency, for that matter, then it's uh, that would be that's why, we need <laughs> that's why we need a distinction, because when we're doing this with our own currency, it's how we determine what's going on. But it is not a debt. When it's someone else's currency, that's when it's a debt. And that's where this word debt causes problems for people who haven't you know, learned how it really works. Debt makes perfect sense when it's in someone else's currency and they manipulate the value of that thus affecting what you owe them yeah the, we get back really to the single most important distinction that most people don't understand which is the one between a currency issuer and a currency user if you as a government borrow us dollars and you're not the us government then you're a currency user like any else. not an issuer yeah that's right well, and, and the same thing applies for the difference i, I, I guess and, and perhaps the reason why we ask questions about debt is that uh, a household understands debt where a household has no reason to understand inflation or has no connection. Yeah, but a household understands inflation, but it only understands it in one way. It costs more to buy the same thing. That is mm -hmm. consistent in a way the use of this word debt isn't. So if we want to jump back to our original thing about leaders of political parties, Albo, think before you mm -hmm. talk. Morrison, grow your imagination about the future to encompass the idea that if you can visualize the society you want to build as our leader, you have the tools at your disposal to make it happen and it will require financial tools, but the vast majority of it will not incur foreign debt, which means you can do it and it can be managed and it's not a problem. There's no reason for him to take out any foreign currency denominated debt. The government doesn't have any at the moment. Any, anything significant apart from um, there's a little bit 
which is to do with this crisis, which is a, a swap line that the RBA has entered into with the Federal Reserve. But basically, the government doesn't have any foreign currency denominated debt, and there's no reason for it to take out any. Okay, so if there's a single point to try and get across to everyone we encounter who's terrified of this idea of future debt, if they can understand the single thing, that because the vast, vast majority of this spending to get through COVID-19 is Australian dollars on resources within Australia for a public good with keeping inflation under control in mind, there's no debt issue. There's only a management issue. No, it's best not thought of as debt at all. Yeah, basically just managing what, money. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Absolutely. And there's no need to pay it back. It would be inappropriate to even try to run government surpluses in a what would be a weak economy. It would be self-defeating. The economy would just crash. Nobody's going to do that. They might talk about the surplus still because it's very difficult to turn around and contradict what you've been saying for years. But um, yeah, it'll be a long cognitive time. cognitive dissonance if they don't, and that's the problem. After so many decades of thinking stupidly, they're going to have to keep thinking stupidly because it's their default setting. But it's more difficult for them to do so because we have, you know, we've changed. I can remember when I knew everybody that understood modern monetary theory in Australia. Yeah, I remember when you said you could put them all in one room and like name them all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And before that, I mean, before I was part of the team, um, you could fit them all in a car. Yeah. Uh, the reason I know Stephanie, who's a really important global economist, is not because I am. It's just because there are so there were so few of us, so you yeah. knew everyone, and that's changed now. We've got fifty articles in the papers in the last few days, and and you're part of a lot of them, and you're part of the reason yeah. that it's it's bigger. And I don't want to hear any humble comment. Yeah. That, no, no, I'm just not. <laughs> we do have, we have. Uh, there is a one of the intellectual colossuses of MMT is Australian. True. Yeah. That's. Uh, Bill Mitchell, I'm just about it. Um, and he's the person actually that I believe that came up with the term modern monetary theory in the first place mm -hmm. a long time ago. And he's one of the big four. I sometimes annoy them by calling them the MMT Beatles. Stephanie's another one. And then there's Warren Mosler. Who's who, Ringo? Oh, that's <laughs> usually I say, I'm not going to say which one is Ringo. Oh, I'm okay. say that otherwise it's going to be, uh, it, no, there isn't a Ringo. I can't Although, say Ringo was a good one. drummer. Apologies. So the third uh, one is Randall Ray, Randall, okay. Randy Ray, L. Randall Ray, who uh, was a very close colleague and student of Heine Minsky and mm -hmm. wrote a, a superb book called Why Minsky Matters, which is worth people reading at some point, and has also written a very good primer uh, just called Modern Money Theory and was a co-author with Bill Mitchell and an, another Australian, Randy's not Australian, but called Martin Watts of a uh, macroeconomics spoke to uh, yeah, yeah yeah well martin yeah, watson Bill mitchell yeah. and randy ray spent years writing a textbook which is I, I like this it's not called modern monetary theory it's just called macroeconomics the textbook and that's how where we want to get to it's quite difficult for me because i have some very likable colleagues that i'm basically arguing i think you need to go back and do first year again which is uh, that's we that's how different our yeah. approach to thinking about the economy and the role of the government is to theirs we disagree it's not designed to be rude if you got the fundamentals just, wrong you need to correct them and that's painful but if you don't correct them everything you build will fall down let, let me just clarify these people 
are exceptionally intelligent and often brilliant mathematicians. If you think ever think people are a bit grumpy, I'm, I'm not going to name people now, but if you ever come across any MMT person who is a bit grumpy, particularly if they've been doing MMT for years, it is because they are used to being ignored or laughed at. In the case of Bill Mitchell, he gives he, he tells a story where he was asked to address a conference and there was supposed to be a discussant um, on one occasion and uh, he explained the basics of MMT and then his discussant just stood up and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been visited by someone from a different planet today and sat down. That was all they said. So that. we're used to that kind of thing. And I'm yeah. used to my colleagues saying basically about me, stop saying these crazy things, Stephen. And my yeah, response, but I get that too for teaching hard security. So I know exactly what that's like. Yeah. And you just have to turn around and say, well, what precisely have I said, which isn't correct? Yeah. And am I explaining the world better than you are? Yes. In that case, sit down and shut up. Well, I wouldn't say that. But neoclassical macroeconomics is founded on a set of axioms or assumptions that you don't question. You just use them and you look at the logical consequences of building a model based on those assumptions. And uh, it's architecturally complicated and there is a certain beauty to it. But yeah, the trouble is, theory, not those assumptions are wrong. If the assumptions are wrong, as David was saying, you start from the wrong yeah, the place. Whole premise, the whole you're going to end up at the wrong yeah, place. That's right. That's right. Mm. So to kind of bring this back to something more immediate, yeah, you may not be able to say, and you may not know either. But is Stephanie having to add anything to her book because of what's going on in the world now? Like, is she desperately trying to put in a blueprint? She has chapter uh, for written. Recovery? She's written a supplement. I know. I don't. I'm not. It would be misleading to make out that I was her closest buddy or anything. So oh, no, not, that's why I asked, do not, you know and can you we're not a, Yeah, we're not in close contact every day, but I did ask her about bringing it out sooner because it would have been nice to have the book available yeah. now. And she has asked the publishers and they've moved forward the British publication date, but they haven't moved forward the, the global publication date. So what she has done is she's... Uh, written a just a, a brief bit I suppose to go in the end of the book about okay. recent events yeah but which is good because I think that's what people are going to need to get into this they're going to need someone saying here's a recovery plan you're not going to understand it all but you can now read the book and understand it all but let's give you an idea of where the arrow points first and then dive in it's quite difficult of course to launch a book like this now because she was going to do a, a tour of lots and lots of US cities and across Europe as well and do lots of uh, presentations and she's not going to be doing that now. What she is doing, by the way, I guess their podcast will still be available. She is on The Economist on Radio National with Peter Martin and Gigi Foster on the same day that we are recording this podcast. That's right. So awesome. that'll be on uh, yeah, so it, that'll, be that'll be on the, the AB, podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, be on yeah. the ABC Radio web page. If people, yeah. They're yeah. going to be asking her about the book. Excellent. And we will ask around. Oh, so uh, we will after ask you listen to our podcast, you could go on the, you could, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's crazily busy. I mean, I, I've been ridiculously busy for me, and she will have been far busier than this. So yeah. things like that, I've had to remind her about what she'd agreed to do, something about the people that will be interviewing her because she's doing interview after interview after interview at the yeah. moment. It's just crazy. Well, I, I, that said, 
thank you, Stephen, for affording us a, a, a large portion, large chunk of your day while you're teaching too. So that's okay. It's no trouble at all. We, I, I hope it's not been too confusing because we've looked at a variety of of issues. Oh, that's a bit exciting. Yeah, thank you. But I think we need to so that people realise it's all interconnected, and you can jump in wherever you have the most familiarity or interest, as long as you keep remembering to grow your web of connected ideas until you see it all does make sense and it all does fit together. Yeah, and people if people just keep in the back of their mind the whole time as an antidote to everything they hear, that every dollar the government spends is a new dollar, taxes just delete dollars, they don't pay for the government spending, the government deficit is everybody else's surplus, it's just a deposit the government's making in the banking system, and the so-called government's debt is just the net money supply, just those dollars the government spent into existence they've not taxed away yet. Once people have got that, and that's not very much, sort of embedded somewhere in, a, in, in the neurons, then everything else follows. Mm. Now, Albo and Scott from Marketing, pay attention to those simple facts brought to us by a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Tim, and thanks, David. Hello listeners, if you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Blind Insights.